This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of November 3rd, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 204 of Defender Radio. Late last week, we unveiled our latest and largest ever campaign, Make Fur History. On this week's episode of Defender Radio, we'll be telling you more about the campaign, how it was developed, and the realities facing mink and fox on today's Canadian fur farms. Over the last several months, the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals has obtained this footage from a number of farms across the country. It goes without saying that no compassionate Canadian politician would stand by if dogs were forced into these conditions. Yet through inaction and complacency, they have accepted this as the reality for millions of fox and mink every year. Mink in the wild have a home range of 5 kilometers square, spend 60% of their time in the water, and refuse to allow other mink into their territory. On these factory-style fur farms, they are confined to cages that have a floor area of two shoeboxes. They have no access to water for recreation, exercise, or hunting. They are lined up, thousands by thousands, until they are eventually killed and their skin removed. These conditions go against the very nature of these creatures, and as a result, injuries and maladies are common including broken bones, broken teeth, internal bleeding, severe infections, and more. All accepted by industry as they do not damage the fur. Due to the confined quarters, other behaviors that are abnormal appear, including cannibalism. Numerous animal welfare scientific experts, including Drs. Mark Beckoff, Sherry Cox, and Debbie Zimmerman, have offered commentary on this footage. They can all be found at makefurhistory.com. Dr. Zimmerman's comments included this statement. This footage clearly shows that Canadian farmed fox and mink can and do suffer significantly in numerous ways. The current standards inadequately address animal welfare by denying opportunities for the expression of natural behaviors by fox and mink. The idea that welfare is related to naturalness is implicit in the scientific approach to using animal biology in understanding and evaluating animal welfare. That being said, we need to consider if there will ever be a way to accommodate an essentially wild animal's natural biology sufficiently to be ethical and humane. Several European countries have found the answer to this question to be no and have banned fur farming altogether. End quote. The only standards in place for the fur farm industry are not there to protect the animals. They are in place to protect the pelts. Legislation that does exist is weak and not proactively enforced due to government cutbacks and a lack of political will. Though most fur-bearing animals killed for their skin in Canada are exported overseas, we can still make a difference as informed consumers. In fact, according to polling conducted by Insights West, 63% of Canadians do not own fur. Of those who do, 49% were purchased 6 to 10 years or longer ago, and less than half of Canadians believe fur is morally acceptable. 
This campaign has been launched in conjunction with Lush Cosmetics and the Montreal SPCA. Those who believe that mink and fox should not be kept in these deplorable conditions and that no fur-bearing animal should be killed for their skin can visit MakeFurHistory.com to sign petitions, send letters, learn the truth about the fur industry, and take a pledge to make fur history. Together, Canadians can end this inherently inhumane industry. Together, we can make fur history. Now let's hear from Trisha Stevens of Lush Cosmetics on why the international makeup company decided to get behind the campaign. Now, why does Lush, a cosmetics company, get involved in advocacy campaigns? Lush is and has always been a campaigning company. We believe in standing up for animal rights, protecting the environment, and humanitarian causes. With over 200 stores in North America, we have a unique platform to create positive change in our world, and we put our ethics into practice through activism as well as our charitable giving. And why did Lush choose to get involved with the Make Fur History campaign specifically? We got involved with the Make Fur History campaign to help educate the general public and our customers about the inhumane treatment of animals that occurs in the commercial fur trade. We want to help expose the practice of fur farming, incite citizens to take a stand against fur, and change consumer habits surrounding the purchase and wearing of fur. All right, and what is it that people can be doing uh, to support this campaign through Lush in particular? You can pledge to go fur free in any of our shops as well as through our online channels. You can surrender a fur item at any one of our North American locations in exchange for a cruelty-free vegan product of your choice. You can purchase a Charity Pod hand and body lotion where 100% of the proceeds go to grassroots organizations like the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals who work tirelessly on issues like these. And you can also visit MakeFurHistory.com to learn more about the fur industry and additional ways that you can get involved. And a follow-up question, what's going to happen with the fur that people donate? The fur that people donate or surrender in our shops is going to be repurposed and donated to um, animal rehabilitation sanctuaries across Canada and the United States. So they'll reuse these to mimic um, the warmth of a mother when they're rehabilitating uh, animals in their shelters. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride, Find out more at arrivealive.org. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. 
Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. We're back to talk more about our latest campaign, Make Fur History, and learn about the realities of factory-styled fur farms in Canada. One of our partner agencies, the Montreal SPCA, has done intensive work looking at the legislation surrounding animals on fur farms and what it all means in the big picture. To share more of this unsettling subject is Alana Devine of the Montreal SPCA. Uh, so why don't we start out and look at what the existing legislation in Canada is in regards to fur-farmed animals. So the reality for fur-farmed animals in Canada and in the United States is that there is very little in the way of legislation that provides any real protection for these animals. In Canada, federally, we're dealing with a criminal code, which is not preventative in nature. And also the way that the criminal code is interpreted, essentially it per permits for uh, industry to determine what is necessary and unnecessary for them to do to animals and anything that is necessary for their financial benefit, including things that cause suffering to animals, is going to be permitted under the criminal code. In Canada, on a provincial level, uh, Every province does have provincial animal welfare legislation, and unfortunately, in every province, that legislation includes exemptions for generally accepted practices. And generally accepted practices are, again, defined by the industry. So provided a large enough portion of the industry uh, determines that a practice is acceptable, again, for their purposes of making a profit or for efficiency, no matter how inhumane that practice is, it's going to be exempt from the provincial animal welfare legislation. So it really sounds like it's old-fashioned agricultural laws that are being used to protect fur farms. Exactly. So the industry does like to refer to the fact that there is legislation, but they always fail to <laughs> point out the fact that the, that legislation is unfortunately designed to basically enable them to do whatever they would like. Uh, in order to make a profit and in order to be uh, have the highest efficiency and productivity with respect to the animals um, that they have on those fur farms. So let's talk about the codes of practice. That's something that comes up a lot. People say, well, there are codes in place and that guarantees animal welfare is looked after. But that's something you and I and our organizations have talked about a great deal. Can you explain what these codes are and why they aren't what they seem to be? Absolutely. So the national codes of practice, and there are two that do exist uh, with respect to fur-farmed animals. So there's a code of practice for fur-farmed mink and a code of practice for fur-farmed fox. These codes are 100% voluntary unless a province adopts them into their legislation. So currently, only Newfoundland and Labrador have even adopted these codes of practice into their legislation. In every other province, the codes in and of themselves are 100% voluntary, which means it's up to each fur farmer and up to the industry whether or not they're even applied. The second thing that is important to know about the codes of practice is the fact that these practices, uh, again, these 
codes came out in 2013 were put together by a predominantly industry-dominated committee. So even the standards, again, that are voluntary uh, are below what experts in uh, Farm, in wildlife welfare, in uh, behavioral welfare, people that are experts in the field but that are not related to the industry will look at the codes of practice and say that these minimum standards that in and of themselves are voluntary are not acceptable even if they are being adhered to. One of the things that's been very interesting as well is the discussion of veterinary review. So a lot of these farms are supposed to have a vet come by and say, yes, these animals are healthy or no, they're not, and so on. Um and we have heard in the past from veterinarians who have said they're good enough, uh, these, the condition of these animals or the conditions they're being kept in. But as part of this Make for History campaign, we contacted a number of, of wildlife, veterinary, and general animal welfare specialists who have all stated that there are a lot of significant problems here. So why are we seeing that kind of polar opposite view? You know, one side saying everything's hunky-dunky and the other side more or less doing a, a visible gasp and then uh, condemning a lot of what they've seen. I think with respect to experts and veterinarians, there are some very important points to remember. One, the majority of veterinarians or scientists that the industry refers to are either scientists or veterinarians that specifically work for the industry or whose research are being funded by the industry or they refer to studies that may be funded by the government but that are actually conducted by the industry. So I think it's first and foremost important to keep in mind that uh, a lot of the scientific material that the fur industry points to um, is skewed in that there is some financial benefit to those conducting the studies or the experiments um, in that they are directly related to the fur industry. We're talking about here the experts that were approached for the Make for History campaign, completely independent, unbiased scientists and professionals who don't have any financial interest in what happens in the fur industry. Is that something people should really be trying to think about and, and again this is something uh, in my media shtick I'll often talk about is following the money and determining where these studies come from and who these people are and who they work for I, I, I can't imagine average people are going to have the understanding of the scientific community to really be able to see through all of that but is it something they should always be considering when they're reading response from the fur industry or frankly from any other industry Absolutely. I think that, again, we want to be asking questions specifically when there are scientific studies done that are paid for by the industry. Who's paying for this and what exactly are the purposes of the study? So very often uh, what we've seen in reading scientific materials that come from the industry is that they're comparing two horrific and equally bad practices. Uh, one of the rhetorics that we see time and time again in the scientific reviews is that well, fur farmed animals have it better than other farmed animals because they're not living in their own excrement. So yay for fur farms. Um, again, that's that's stated scientifically, but clearly we're talking about comparing absolutely unacceptable conditions to other absolutely unacceptable conditions. Saying that fur farmed animals um, and fur farms have are are kept in animals are kept in acceptable conditions uh, because unlike pigs and factory farms, they're not living in their own excrement is really not a logical 
coherent or acceptably ethical, ethically acceptable argument. And I think it's important to step back from that and say, hold on a second. What are these animals being forced to live in? How are these animals dying? And given the whole of what we see and what these animals are forced to endure, is it really necessary to produce a luxury item that nobody needs? And the answer time and time again is no. And when we look at, again, independent scientific review with respect to how these animals are living, every single opinion comes back to the fact that the welfare of these animals in totality is not being respected and that this is an industry that really should not and does not need to exist. This has been a long road for us at the association, but we're proud to be shining a spotlight on the darkest cages, proud to show the truth about the fur industry, and proud to be playing a role in the efforts to make fur history. We ask anyone who is interested to visit MakeFurHistory.com, take the pledge, sign the letters, and share with your friends and family. Together, we will make fur history. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.